Welcome to the Product Quest podcast. Thank you for joining us on our journey to better understand innovation and product strategy. My name is Jan Vermut, and joining me, as always, are my co-hosts Scott Burson and Jonathan Edwards. Today, we are delighted to have a special guest join us as well to talk about how she discovered jobs to be done and how she's applying it to a surprising and extraordinary field, the art world. Ruth Hart, a very warm welcome to you, and thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you for having me. I love geeking out over jobs to be done theory, so I'm really excited about this. Good. So you're in the right place, I think. You're in the <laughs> right place for that. <laughs> Ruth, I mean, I mentioned it, I, I mentioned the art world and so on. Probably it would be good if you could kind of give us an idea of how you've been living in that and give us a little bit of a background of, about yourself and how, how, yeah, how you've been living and breathing, as it were, in, this, in the art world space. So what do we have to imagine? Sure. So for the first 17 years of my career, I was in the, in the music world. Uh, I was an opera singer and a music educator. And so I performed with opera companies. I soloed with orchestras and choirs. Um, I conducted high school choruses and church choirs. I directed musical theater productions. Basically, you name it, I've done it. (laughs) I'm a pianist, so I played in pit orchestras. I've accompanied choirs. I, you know, so it's, it was a, I was fully embedded in that world for many, many years. Uh, That's nice. Was that always the case? That was, I mean, I grew up in a very musical family. Um, and so yeah, right, yeah. it was just part of my life from very young. I think I started piano lessons when I was five. So <laughs> I've been doing music a very long time. Uh, I've tr- I rem- uh, that's, this, this brings about uh, some bad memories. I tried playing the piano, but I'm so bad at it, I can tell you. But I love <laughs> listening to music. So. <laughs> I'm not a producer. Okay, so... It, I discovered on your website, on your personal website, I, I thought this was just a very nice sentence. You, you put it there and you say, I believe music has the power to heal, unite and inspire. Could you, could you elaborate a little bit on that and what, and what that means? Yeah, and I think it's a good way to, to start would be to share a bit of my own um, experience. Um, so I myself, I grew up in rural Maine um, in a blue collar family and you know, it was a really narrow world. There were limited options, minimal social capital, but my parents, thank God, they recognized my musical inclinations um, at a very young age. And they enrolled me in piano lessons when I was five. And um, I had this terrifying teacher, um, this spinster piano teacher um, named Miss White, but, (laughs) um, (laughs) but playing piano, it really became a crucial outlet for me um, personally, an outlet for expression, you know, a source of pride and accomplishment. It cultivated my confidence and the music itself, you know, transported me, at least in my mind to, to other worlds, you know, and I got to sing in the main all-state chorus. That really broadened my horizons. We had three incredible guest conductors who led these most amazing rehearsals. And I really had a, a front row seat to these priceless demonstrations of inspired leadership and charismatic teaching. So, it, it, you know, music really transformed my own life. And I can't imagine, you know, what I what it would have been without it. So, of course, when I enrolled in college, I was a music education major. That just made sense to me, you know. Yeah. Um, and when I became a music teacher myself, I got to see this transformative power in my own students. Um, you know, I had a student with autism who had no social connections at school come into course at the beginning of the year, you know, not giving eye contact, not really showing emotion. And at the end of the year, he was, you know, high-fiving his chorus buddies and grinning. And um, another student who started as a freshman and she was painfully shy, um, 
but she ended up as a senior being voted chorus president and singing the most incredible solo at one of our concerts. So, um, and I think, you know, as a performer, I've seen the healing aspect of music as well. Mm -hmm. um, you know, when I see an audience member brought to tears by a piece of music and they're able to sort of process some deep emotion that they didn't realize they needed to process, yeah. um, you know, and not to mention the health benefits too. I mean, research has shown that you, music can, can decrease anxiety and reduce blood pressure and help with pain management and the list goes on and on. Um, and when it comes to, to inspiring, um, it, I, I read this really neat article about how researchers have found that the feeling of awe that comes from experiencing something incredible in the arts, um, it can really lead to a shift in perception for somebody. It can open them up and it, it can make them feel expanded and as if they're part of something larger. And I think that's why, you know, as a society, we use music to bring people together when we're celebrating or when we're mourning, you know, it's something that it, it's just, there's so many, there are so many uses for music and it's so, it's just such a powerful tool. Oh, that's nice. We were just talking about it with Scott prior to this. It makes me think of the conversation where like somehow listening to music by yourself, it, that, that has kind of one kind of job, but listening to music with, with others, that's kind of a whole different story. It kind of addresses another another need or another job that you, I, I, in some sense at least, or at least that's what, what you're also saying, right? In a sense, it really does. I think it 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 really makes you feel like you're part of something, which I think is such an important thing for a human to feel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I absolutely agree. Nice. So. I mean, we mentioned it before and, and, and we kind of have to find our way to, through jobs to be done. There is a very, very clear and straightforward path, but maybe could you um, elaborate a little bit on how you found jobs to be done and how you touched upon this or how, how, how this? Yes. Yes. So I landed a job at the Christensen Institute, the Clayton Christensen Institute in 2017 um, after making the decision to transition out of the music world. Um, you know, part of it was I had an encounter with pregnancy discrimination that left me a little bit jaded with the arts sector. Um, and I thought, you know, I, I just got to find a job that pays the bills. Um, but <laughs> what I discovered was, you know, I, what I what I found at the Institute was what I like to call my MBA boot camp. Um, you know, it, it, embarrassingly, I never heard of Clayton Christensen before, and I don't think many people in the music world have. But I discovered, oh, okay, so he's this world-renowned business thinker. He's a best-selling author, and he's formulated formulated these really powerful theories that have changed the business world. Um, I should probably learn these theories. You know, I should probably start reading these books. And so, you know, I read The Innovator Solution and Competing Against Luck. Um, and at the Institute, what researchers do at the Institute is we're taking um, these powerful theory frameworks and we're applying them to, to pressing issues in the social sector. Um, so we're trying to help leaders see problems in a new way. And we're, you know, with the goal of, you know, helping to transform education and healthcare and mm -hmm. poverty. Um, so my role at the Institute was really, um, you know, helping with operations and management and human resources. And then um, as I became familiar with the theories, I started to realize, hey, wait a second, these theories, we've got this problem in the art sector that maybe these theories could help with. We've got this problem of audience decline. Um, I wonder if these could help. Um, so it really sparked an interest in me in, in, in applying these ideas. And I, I started reading and writing and, and th that's what sort of brought this blog about that I've been um, writing in for, for almost a year now. Um, it just sparked this sort of passion project for me. And I think um, 
with jobs to be done, it's just, it's, it's, it's a counterintuitive way of looking at the world, but once you get it, it just makes so much sense, right? Everything looks different, <laughs> right? It completely changes the way you think about the world. And, and that really got me excited about, you know, maybe this will help, help create change in the art sector. Okay, I would really love to get into this in, 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 in more in more detail, kind of how you how you brought these two together. You, you mentioned it's a kind of counterintuitive way of looking at stuff. Can you can you, what does that mean? Well, I think in today's world, it's all about data mining. We're we're trying to get all of this data about our potential customers, and we're mining through it. We're combing through it to try to figure out you know how do we get people to buy our products. But the problem is. Demographic data doesn't provide the context that we need, right? So it doesn't get to the bottom of why people buy because people aren't motivated um, to make a purchase decision because of their age or their ethnicity or their income bracket or their family size. They're motivated to make a purchase because of a struggle they're facing in their life. Um, and so they hire a product or they bring it into their lives to help them with that struggle, to help them make progress. So when you look at it that way, it's, it's, it's really an eye-opening um, moment. I think for me, when I started to think about the arts sector, you know, we have it all backwards in the arts sector, right? <laughs> what do you mean? In what sense? You know, I, I, I like to use the word egocentric when I talk about um, uh, art sector marketing, because um, so I, I actually, I, um, this month I actually, looked through about 180 arts sector websites because I wanted to make sure that I wasn't, <laughs> that I was right. Like, I, I know I've seen this everywhere, but like, have I really, you know, are there any arts organizations that- You were doing uh, the research, as is where yeah. <laughs> Exactly. So, um, yeah, one of my um, most popular blogs um, is entitled 10 Signs Your Arts Organization is Egocentric. So what I see in, in the arts world is, um, when you go to these websites, you see a giant photo of the conductor on the homepage or a picture of the orchestra. Um, you don't see the audience. And when you read the copy, um, the copy is focused on what show is coming up next, how beautiful the music is, how talented the musicians are. Um, and here, here's where you buy a ticket or here's how you can support us by donating. But there's nothing about how these offerings could help a consumer or transform their life. And, you know, all of these people are wearing tuxedos and gowns and that's, yeah. you know, not what consumers wear are familiar with on an everyday basis. Um, and I think what I realized is you start to compare this traditional arts marketing to marketing in other sectors and you start to notice how much this approach just ignores the customer. Um, that it got me really riled up because <laughs> um, you think about your favorite TV commercial or your favorite social media campaign. And you, you know, the most successful ads that you see are centering around the customer story and they look so different from a typical orchestra ad. Um, they're using, you know, the customer's own words. Um, they're using imagery and stories that are familiar and relatable. And they're doing that because it works. Um, yeah. Because when your marketing lines up with how people interact with their own world, they're much more inclined to buy in. I think that is a very powerful breakthrough. Um, what's also interesting is that no matter, I've, all, I've often said, no matter what business somebody is in, they, they become a little myopic or obsessed with their own products, their own technology. And then in your immersion in the 
art world or in the music world, it's you're describing the same phenomenon where we become in love with ourselves. Our, our and then and yet a few minutes ago when we were, were talking about what are the, some of the jobs that music can do, one of the ones that, that came was what helps us to connect with people. And mm -hmm. um, you know, and you think about what's why would I watch a con why would I attend a concert as opposed to just watch one? Well, if I'm one reason is I can I'm connecting with all these random people. Uh, well, that we have something in common. Uh, that what's in common that we're we're having we're enjoying a shared experience. And if we we talked through it a lot more, we could probably we could probably deter uh, connect with people. We could probably come up with some other um, job language jobs that they're there to accomplish. And so that the fact that you made that that um, that connection is just. I mean, it's just amazing. It's it's amazing. What's amazing how it's wild. The this music as a solution is similar to all the other solutions that that we have, and the and this with the same uh, faults that as marketers and product developers that that we would have. Well, and that's why I say it's so counterintuitive because you're so immersed in you in that world. Arts, you know, people in the arts have been like I have been you know playing piano since the age of five you know that's all it's 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 not all they know but they know it that world so well and it's it's hard to take off those lenses and see that see their world from the outsider's perspective which i think is so important yeah absolutely i mean this is it's it's so nice also i mean it, it's for me it's the same when we think about companies right mm -hmm. on the one hand it's so obvious that we should be thinking much more about the customer but but on the on the same at the same time we tend to so easily forget about them and, and, and somehow you're describing the same in the arts world in the music world where it's so obvious that if you are in an opera I mean there has to be an opera there or other, uh, an audience there or otherwise I mean who you're playing for but still we, we we forget about it so so it's crazy kind of how how easily we get egocentric or ego ego focused I like really that expression so it's really mm -hmm. about this because it's not about me. No, neither in music nor in probably in the business it's about helping other people yeah and i think it's so hard for so many artists and, and arts administrators they sort of put their art up on a pedestal and they really believe you know classical music is the highest form of art yeah. okay maybe it is <laughs> but you know our audience have to have our audiences have declined by 50 percent since 1997 only 8.6 wow. of u.s adults attend live classical music performances so when we run out of these loyals, these connoisseurs of the highest art form, who's going to be left? <laughs> yeah. It's a real problem unless we change something, right? Hopefully we will have a new court of cohort of audiences who used to be outsiders, who we were able to get inside our doors by marketing with relevance and empathy using these, you know, customer centric approaches. And, um, you know, there are, I do have some, some friends who are, you know, composers or conductors or singers who who get a little bit frustrated when I say you, we have to be marketing the job, the social connection, the fancy night out, you know, the improvement of the, so, of our social standing when we go out, you know, mm. um, all these are, are sort of non art related reasons. Um, we have to do that and they get upset with me, but <laughs> if we don't, what's going to be left, you know, and, and, I, and, and I talked about earlier how, you know, art can engender awe. And um, the research tells us when you experience awe, you also experience curiosity. 
So I think it's entirely possible if we can get people into the inside these doors, they will experience awe, they will experience curiosity, and that will drive them to become the new loyals, the new connoisseurs, the new super fans who have a deep appreciation for the extraordinary beauty and power that classical music brings to the world. But we have to get them in the door first. That's the biggest problem. Yeah. You, know, you reminded me of, I can't I wish I could remember it, but it was a book. And the whole book was about how the brain processes music. And it and it it went, see if this I'm trying to recall something from years ago, but it was something about part of the enjoyment comes when your brain's trying to anticipate what's mm. coming, which is why a hook works. Like if mm. watch why the you know the simpler a simple melody that repeats, that's why the most popular songs often are the, these repetitive things. Um, but with the with and again, I'm I'm not an expert in classical music, but I imagine it seems from the outsider that the 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 um the higher forms of classical music might have less uh less hooks, if you will, less repeating. Um, yes. is there is there um as you're looking at music as a product in a way, is that on the table uh for to modify the music, or is it sort of like, no, this is sort of what it what it would be, and then we would need to we we almost need to help folks to be able to better appreciate it. Maybe it's similar to like, if people don't like the, the wine, maybe you make it sweeter. I mean, I don't know. Does that question make sense? Yeah, it does. And I think it is, it actually is a really big topic of conversation in, in the arts world. Do we dumb down our art um, to, you know, reach more people? And I actually don't think that's the answer. Um, I think, I think the answer is showing people you, we understand your struggle. We understand your, let's, let's take the millennial who is connected to their, their cell phone 24 seven and the, this noisy world that, you know, constantly they're getting pinged by work and, you know, and news and social media. Um, there's a job to be done there. You know, the, 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 the technology detox has become more and more popular lately. Um, and that's something that arts can help with. Right. So if we can show them, we can help you with this struggle of being connected to your phone and being so sick of this noise. Um, come to a, a classical music concert. You don't have to understand the music. Your job is just to sit there and enjoy being disconnected and unplugged. Right. And and see how that can transform you. So I think it's in how we approach the marketing there. Yeah, I remember in, oh, sorry, in one of your in one of your articles actually mentioned uh, an initiative of in Portland called the Classical Uprising. And I think uh, you, you also talk about some of the barriers people face or fears they might face in uh, attending these classical events. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if you could say a bit more about about that. Yeah, uh, Classical Uprising is a group up here in Portland, Maine, and what I love about their mission statement is they talk about how um, traditional concerts <laughs> can feel like an ordeal for some people. You know, you have to put your life on hold. You have to put your phone away. Um, you have to sit quietly for two hours. Kids aren't usually welcome. There's all these mysterious rules of etiquette. Like, when am I supposed to clap? You know, what am I supposed to wear? And, and I think those are, you know, Bob Mesta who wrote um, Demand Side Sales. He's a uh, huge jobs to be done guy. Um, he talks a lot about how if the anxieties and the obstacles of, you know, hiring this solution or this product outweigh the benefits, people aren't going to do it. <laughs> They're going to say, that's not for me. I just, that, you know, I just, I don't even know where to start. Um, so I think part of our job in the arts world is figuring out what these anxieties and obstacles and barriers are and trying to eliminate them as much as we can. I think 
having, you know, the classical, um, the California Symphony with Aubrey Bergauer, um, they decided to allow phone usage in a concert, which is, you know, was unheard of Ooh. previously. But um, I think it's a, it's a great marketing opportunity because, you know, if people have their phones out, they might be Instagramming the fact that they're at the California Symphony. And guess what? That's free marketing, you know? So, um, you know, allowing people to bring drinks to their seats and telling them wear whatever you want and clap whenever you want. If you feel inspired, um, go for it. You know, I think those are some of the ways that we can sort of meet audiences where they are. Yeah. I think one of the biggest deterrents is kind of feeling stupid. Yes. If you feel stupid, you will never go there. You will never do it. And I think that's, if, if you have that fear of, 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 I'm going to an opera, then, I mean, I can, okay, I'll, my, the, my wife's grandma, um, she's been invited to go to actually see an opera here in Zurich. And, and you cannot imagine the fuss uh, beforehand, like what, what dress should I buy? And then we have to organize a whole day where she chooses a new dress. I mean, it really, <laughs> it drives her up completely, but, but in yeah. a sense, it's excitement. Okay. That's, that's the nice part of it. But the other hand, it's a sign of, it's a place I don't feel comfortable at. And yes. I, I don't know how to behave. So how, what should I do? Yeah. And I, I wrote a blog about how um, a couple of months ago I walked into a lumber yard <laughs> because I, I had, I was trying to buy wood for something. By accident something. or? Oh, <laughs> no, on purpose. And um, <laughs> okay. I had never been to a lumber yard and all of a sudden my heart was pounding. I was sweating. I didn't know wh who to talk to, where to go. It was so uncomfortable. I wasn't dressed the way they were dressed. And I, I came home and I was like, oh my gosh. That's what it feels like for an outsider come to come to an opera or an orchestra concert. And it was so eye-opening, I think. And everybody should try to have that experience um, because you start to realize we, we need to make this more welcoming. You know, we've got to change things up. Yeah. It's really just putting yourself in the customer's perspective. I think that is also something that for some, at least, Jobs to be done can really, really help accomplish this. If, if you really understand the full I think, or grasp the power of it, it really helps you make that switch and see yourself, see yourself from the outside. If, if you actually think about it in depth, I think. Yeah, absolutely. I, 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 maybe oh, I sorry, to, oh, sorry. Uh, I just wanted to go back on a comment you made just a bit earlier. Uh, you said that some artists that you talked to pushed back against the idea of, uh, you know, developing the, let's say art as a service and develop developing annex uh, things to the, the performance itself. Um, I wondered if you could say why uh, the, they react like this. What, what are your thoughts on that? I feel, I, I think they're concerned about dumbing down the art for one thing. Um, and I, I think it's just that issue of being so immersed in the world and, and holding it as such a treasure. Um, and wanting to main, you know, preserve the traditions around it. I think there's a fear that we're going to really sort of bastardize it in a way. Um, and, and people are going to come for the wrong reasons. Um, and I think it's such a problematic um, way of thinking because, you know, US consumers have, have so little context for the classical music world. Um, and I, they have context for the pop, you know, for, for pop singers and for Hollywood movies. But when it comes to, to classical music, it's just, they, they don't, they don't understand that world. And so all of the, so many of the elements of the classical music world that we are familiar with, it's not relevant and familiar to the, these outsiders. And so it, it, it just doesn't work as a marketing feature. Yeah. I, 
go on. Oh, I was going to say that I can understand a bit of the reluctance that some of the uniqueness might be in some of the things that are traditions and they have enjoyed and it's what they appreciated as children and, and musicians and you know even just like what clothes people wear that once these are well these traditions are um are, are changed that it might that something might be lost i can it's a it's a you know it's one of these um i mean to be like make um you know golfers what you have different traditions certain clothes that you wear like you don't wear blue jeans to play golf but the yeah, or you only use certain uh, models of balls or clubs or whatever you know i can i can sympathize with the concern of um it, i mean it might not be in the best interest of the long term of, of um of making it more popular but i can appreciate the concern with losing traditions mm -hmm. absolutely yeah and in fact i wrote a blog post about the golf industry i don't know if you saw that <laughs> why you brought it up you look at the um the decline in golf participation and it actually sort of mimics the decline in classical music audiences which is fascinating to me and and there is a new approach to golf these days where there are they are a lot of you know new golf ranges have um reduced the holes you know to like 12 or six and um you know they're letting people wear whatever and they're they're serving beer and pizza and ice cream on the golf course they're so they're trying to do what i think the music sector probably needs to do a little of as well which is fascinating i mean my impression was that golf had, uh, has become more popular uh, in, in my mind it was a very elitist sport and now it seems i get the feeling more and more people play golf but i'm not an expert on golf so i wouldn't know for sure <laughs> Yeah, I think they have done, they have been able to sort of turn it around recently with some of these um, changes, which is fascinating. Someone just, about, I'm sorry, about Dr. Christensen's work is he's just given us a language to even, I mean, the right answer, it yeah. might be to do something to make it a better experience or to, or or it might be just, just really, it depends on who your market is. You might really be focusing on the traditionalists, regardless of what the answer is. He's given us a language to have the conversation. You know, he gave us this idea of the, the non-consumer right mm. the person who is and you can sort of define that as a non-consumer of music or a non-consumer of classical music and if that's your goal if you're if it's your goal to really double down on that traditionalist it's a perfectly valid goal it just has implications but if your goal is to grow the pie and target maybe it's the consumer of music but the non-consumer of of classical music regardless of what the answer is he's given us a language we can have this the discussion about and that's that's sort of and that it's amazing to me how those this these term this terminology uh seems to work in every in every business um but mm -hmm. regarding dr christensen i mean he obviously passed a couple years ago and I, I i'm not sure what his health was over the the past uh decade was um but what was i assume you got to meet him what were some of your experiences with him i did get to meet him um yeah, it, I was very intimidated. <laughs> He's very, very tall and, um, you know, such an intelligent guy. It was, yeah, it's not every day you get to rub shoulders with a, you know, a best-selling author and a world-renowned business thinker. And, you know, I, I came in not knowing much about him, but he was getting phone calls from like ambassadors around the world wanting to get his advice on, on different things. And so, <laughs> like I said, it was a little intimidating, but, um, you know, I was so grateful. I had the chance to meet him and see him in action before he, he passed away in, in January, 2020. Um, 
it, you know, he would sit in on, on our, we have quarterly meetings called geek outs where we all get together and talk about the theories and how we're applying them. And he would sit in the back and then, you know, occasionally drop the most incredible comment that wouldn't like <laughs> change the whole, you know, direction of the, of the conversation. But yeah, it, and I think, you know, at the Institute too, I've got to work alongside these brilliant researchers who many of them work closely with clay. So they, you know, have, you know, really, um, in his ideas are ingrained in their work as well. So I think my job, jobs to be done thinking is, is very strongly influenced by, by his approach. Yeah, I think we, we kind of all are, I mean, there is different kind of, let's say, mavericks or something of, of, of jobs to be done or kind of the giants, let's say, call it jobs to be done. And Christensen, of course, is, is I mean, what, what, what a figure. I, I, only, I unfortunately only know him from watching some YouTube videos, but already there you can, I mean, you get a sense of his charisma, I feel like how, how he- Such how he, a storyteller. And I mean, that was his thing. Yeah. Such an incredible storyteller. And he would love to sit with us around the table telling us, these great tales <laughs> whenever we got together yeah i i might want to go i just want to get back to one one point or two maybe that we that we mentioned before because um a lot of the, the discussions we had was also kind of where we said okay does the art world needs dumbing down or 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 the or the or the, the golfing or whatever and i i mean i my background is in philosophy and we have the same issue as it were i think it's probably golfers um um musicians art art lovers and philosophers lovers are on the same kind of decline I, I believe but but i always thought it's not on a it doesn't have to be a question of of dumbing down and i think there it actually jobs to be done can really help it can also be a kind of a question of because jobs to be done does not say you have to make it more accessible, but it's rather of putting a question of what is, how can you find relevance, mm -hmm. right? So I think, and in, in, in there, I mean, if you get this, the same job done, or if you can show people what jobs music can get done or philosophy can get done or other cultural stuff can get done, it, it becomes the questions of how do I stay relevant and how do I get relevant, which I think is something else than just the dumbing down. Of course, it, it might have to move a little bit and shake its old traditions, but it's not necessarily, I would say it's not necessarily a, a dumbing down kind of thing because mm -hmm. it's an art form in itself. I mean, I don't know how many philosophers you know, but there's really few that are really pu publicly known and, and actually have an influence that used to be different. And one or two maybe worldwide actually achieved this and, and, and it's an art form in itself to actually, I mean, how, do you, how to do that and actually get relevance. Uh, that's well, yeah, you said it used to be different with philosophers. And actually, this was a, a question I, I, I marked when you were talking previously, where you said, okay, there's been a decline in the past 20 years of 50%, I think you said, mm -hmm. uh, you mentioned. Um, I mean, people are not dumber today than they were. I mean, wh why do you think well. this is the case that uh, I don't think so anyway, uh, but uh, why would this be the case that um, there's a decline in your opinion? I mean, I guess this difficult to yeah. answer necessarily, but. So I, I read in a, in an article, Clayton Christensen um, pinpointed um, the phonograph as the start of the longest running disruption ever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, you know, before the phonograph came along, where do we get music? We had to go to a live performance. That was it. We bought a ticket. We went. So all of a sudden the phonograph was, was invented and you could suddenly buy a phonograph, buy a record and listen to music whenever you wanted. And that just, we, you know, escalated from there. You know, we had the cassette tapes, the CDs, and then the um, MP3s and all of a sudden Napster, Spotify, YouTube. And so I think 
th- that disruptive innovation sparked I think it sparked the the a lot of the decline that we're seeing. I mean, you can you can go online now and you can listen to pretty much anything for free. Um and there's so much available. There are so many choices you could make. And I think it just, it has diffused um, that, that interest in classical music because there's just so many options. Other other musics also face this uh, dilemma with, uh, I mean, why is it different for classical music specifically than for, I don't know, uh, classic rock or whatever, maybe that's not very uh, popular uh, these days, but uh, I don't know, some other popular form of music. Why would that, that target classical music more than another one? That is a good question. You know, a, a lot of people point to the fact that, um, you know, music education has also declined. That may be a factor um, where it's just not a part of, of everyday life. I think back in the 1800s, most homes had a parlor piano and you would get around it and that would be your entertainment. Um, and so I think it's possible that, you know, that there's a, been a decline in music education and people just aren't as familiar with it. Um, yeah. I don't know. What do you guys think? Well, I mean, I think you, I, I, I think you said in one article, I don't remember exactly how you formulated it, but you said something around the, the idea that there are just many different choices nowadays of different mm-hmm. types of music. You know, we have a lot of different, uh, people uh, you have access to music from all over the world so there's you know before as you said the revolution started with the phonograph uh, and but i think also also just the styles of music i think they are they, that, i mean that would be my opinion just we've got the benefit of all the styles that that have been invented in the past hundred years going, you know, pop, the sixties, seventies, disco, rap, techno music. So these are all new forms of music. And and I think um, probably there's a lot of choice and maybe people choose other things than classical music. Yeah. And and you have a point too. all of these pop stars and are in the mainstream media constantly. And I think for some reason, um, classical music has moved out of that. There used to be, um, NBC used to have an opera company and they used to put on operas on primetime television in the evenings. And that was something that you, the American families would sit around and watch. Um, but that has, has phased out and you're not seeing these, these singers, um, and musicians on at least very often on, you know, late night talk shows and things like that. But, um, that's probably a factor as well. Mm-hmm. I think there is kind of a lesson in there that's also, in, in a sense, valid for 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 a company. For I mean, probably it's it. The issue is there is a very slow decline. The decline is not that rapid in audience. There is a very slow decline. I think a lot of companies are in the same kind of position. They don't right immediately lose fifty percent of the audience, but it kind of just is trailing off. Mm-hmm. I know it from the beverage industry, for example, like sugary drinks. They're not. I mean, they're consumed less and less every year, but it's not a it's not a steep decline kind of thing, and. And there, I also believe that jobs to be done can help because if you figure, if you just think about the product, you could say, okay, let's try to make even better in brackets, classical music and just try to improve it and improve it and improve it. But that mm-hmm. won't change the decline of, of, of your audience. But if you take a jobs to be done lens, it could broaden up the perspective quite quickly. So it kind of, for me, at least the way I would formulate it is you go a step up in the hierarchy. So you don't just look at, I don't know, to go to the opera, but you ask, okay, what's the job of going to the opera? So you move one step up and up and up, and then you kind of get to stuff like to connect with others or to be inspired or, or to heal or as uh, however mm-hmm. you want to put it, then we have to figure that out. And suddenly you, you're, 
I mean, it, it you can realize if you go one level higher, what other things you might need to do without even changing the product, let's say, or yes. maybe you can get an inspiration of what, of what, an, what should an opera look like that addresses these other jobs better than disco or I, I have no clue about music, but yes. you see what I mean? So, and I think Absolutely. it's the same is true for companies as well. If, yeah. if you are in that decline and, and take a step back and have actually look at the job, it probably opens up a lot of new, new spaces. Yeah, and I, uh, I I wrote a blog about um, Opera Australia. Actually, I've written two blogs about Opera Australia. By the way, we should mention it's cultureforhire.com. Is that the blog you're referring that to? That is, yes, is cultureforhire.com. Okay. Yes, thank you. Yeah. Um, so yeah, Opera Australia stands out to me as a company that, I don't know if they're doing it intentionally or not, but they, they seem to be using the jobs to be done approach. And if you go to their website, I actually, they were the one arts organization website I could find that seemed like they were using a customer-centric approach. And um, on their on their website on their homepage, their headline is escape ordinary. Mm. And underneath yeah. that, it says escape to another world under the iconic sales this summer. So they are not there. Nowhere on that page. Do they use the word music or the word opera? Um, they are, they're targeting a very specific job to be done, which is liberation from the unremarkable everyday existence. Right. And I think it's it's a textbook example of how arts marketing should be should be functioning these days. And um, there's nothing on that homepage, at least above the fold, about what you know what's the next show or how to buy a ticket or how to donate. It's it's about this idea of if you go to an opera, you get to get away from the the boring humdrum life that you live in. And they do they think about that in terms of audience experience as well. I know that they um, sometimes they they have costumes out in the lobby where you can actually try them on and, you know, take a photo of yourself in a costume or that you can actually, you know, they they sometimes have um, actors walking around in costume and you can interact with them. And so it's a whole, whole experience. I, I know I, when, before one of their shows, they offered um, dancing lessons. I think it was waltzing lessons before an opera that had, you know, it featured the waltz. And so, yeah, it's, it's about figuring out how we integrate the whole experience around this particular job to be done. And that's what makes the experience rich and worthwhile for the audience. Yeah, that's, that's such a nice example. I mean, they must have, it could be that they're doing it intuitively or, or somebody really smart in there has figured it out. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. And actually you did a, a, a something I really loved and I, I forget the name of the, I think you mentioned in various articles, but you did this kind of ad for, I think exactly this kind of uh, idea of escaping the ordinary where you, you kind of put together some, some, some footage and did a little storyline with uh, uh, a mother who gets a day off a night out to the opera. And I, I've got a background in, in video marketing and making, and that's how I got to jobs to be done. So I, I really loved your approach because that's exactly the approach that I would have uh, taken also. So I, and, and you did it really nicely. And so I just wanted uh, to encourage people to go and check it out in terms of finding ideas for making content. Um, how did you come upon that? And how difficult was it for you to, uh, uh, develop this concept. Yeah, that was, that was so much fun. So, um, I, you know, I had been seeing a lot of the typical, you know, video ad for an orchestra is, um, 
you know, it, it plays orchestral music. It shows the conductor conducting. It shows the orchestra musicians playing. And then it says, you know, our next performance is on such and such a date. Go to our website to buy a ticket. And that's it. That's the formula. And I just got so frustrated with this because there's no, for the outsiders who have no context, they're, they're really, they, they're not going to care. This is not going to prompt them to buy a ticket. There's no emotional draw there whatsoever. And so, um, you know, in competing against luck, one of the ways that Clayton Christensen says you can find a job to be done is to look in your own life. So I look at my own life. I'm a mom, a working mom with a kid. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm cleaning all the time. I'm cooking, I'm getting him dressed and ready to go to school that, you know, that drudgery, it would be nice to have a break from that, you know, and what would that, what would that look like? You know? Um, so really um, it, it, when you have that, that job to be done formulated in your own mind, you know, help me escape from, from the drudgery of everyday life and have a, a fancy night out. So when I come home, I feel rejuvenated and I can be a better mom and a better wife that, I mean, like it's written yeah. itself already, you know, and it's, it was so, I mean, the hardest part about that project was just finding the right footage. The rest, it just came right together. You know, um, I just stole footage from like, you know, a, a YouTube blogger and, you know, Shutterstock or whatever, <laughs> but um, the rest, it just came together. And in that, in that ad, I, the only thing you hear of the orchestra is them tuning up at the very end of the ad. You never see them. You don't hear orchestral music. Um, so it's that feeling that you get, you know, when you sit down in the seat and you're finally alone <laughs> yeah. and you're finally out and you feel like, okay, now I can just breathe. You know, that was the feeling I wanted to evoke. And it was interesting. I, I showed it some, to some of my colleagues at work and one other mom said, I just teared up. <laughs> so I think I accomplished that emotional pull that I was, that I was looking for. That's so nice. I mean, that's really, that's really kind of finding a, a kind of a pain point in the life of, of, of everybody. I mean, that's the, 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 the struggle you're describing, the issue you're describing, that's kind of a, let's put it in brackets, but it's a, an almost universal struggle that you have. Yes. So, and immediately this idea of how big is my market, it changes. Mm -hmm. If that's your market, people who yes. want to escape everyday life, ooh, that's much yes. bigger than people who like classical music. Well, and a lot of advice to arts organizations is ignore the young parents because they're not going to, they're not going to have time or money or want to come. Guess what? That's not true. At least in my own life, you know, and a lot of people that I know, um, there is a market there. You just have to figure out what their struggle is and, and how to, how to market yeah. it, how to show them yeah. that you can help with it. This is, it's so weird, but Scott, you mentioned this before. I think it's jobs to be done really provides your language for this. I'm in my mind. I'm, I, we, we had a project on chocolate. And the jobs you're describing and we're talking about, chocolate does the exact same thing. Yes. And, and it's so crazy. I mean, you have this, you have this kind of um, everyday, um, just pick me up chocolate, which is kind of more the, the Hershey's, the Snickers and so on. That might be the stuff you listen to on Spotify. But then you have this dark chocolate, much more refined, which is you eat it in the evening. It's much more an escape kind of thing. So it, it, it's, it's weird, but it kind of, if you, once you're thinking those jobs and what, I mean, humans just want to accomplish is suddenly those very different things become, become related or I don't know. So yeah. you're, you're saying that chocolate is a competitor to classical music concerts. I would say so. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> From a jobs without perspective. Yeah. Yeah. I would agree. Mm -hmm. One of the challenges is just music can do so many jobs. I mean, you yes. described it a great one to begin with, but it's almost like my brain sort of blows up a little bit. It's like, I don't, I can't, how do I focus on, yes. on one? And, and yeah. again, and so sometimes when introducing jobs be done, a common complaint will be, 
wow, you're really making my market sound very complicated doing all these things. And I'm like, I'm not making it sound complicated. I'm describing <laughs> it. We're, you're just, just because you're not aware of the complexity doesn't make it any simpler. We're, mm -hmm. just, we're, we're under, we're, we're undiscovering it. We're just, we had a conversation about how chocolate and, um, and classical music can compete. We're just now beginning to, to understand it. And, but for music, yeah. So, um, I have no idea, but when I was like three and four years old, I used to listen my, I listened to John Denver records constantly and play with Legos. Now, what was three-year-old, what, I mean, it just seemed, but it was something, I mean, it's, that's weird already. Okay, it's already <laughs> weird, for sure. Plus, that's so weird. But I, I look back on it and it's like, what was, what job was being, now with this language, right? What, why was I doing that? I mean, it, it, it was not just being entertained. There was something comforting. I mean, we could probably yeah. maybe need to, maybe we need to go to a psychologist to <laughs> do that. No, but, I'm going. Sorry, yeah. go ahead. No, go ahead, Scott. I was gonna say I'm just, but with music, that's it's almost like, I, I mean, I just feel like we're just at the very tip, at the top of the iceberg. We're like the a few snowflakes or a sliver of ice at the top of it because of all yeah. the things, and 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 it's and it's. I've thought about jobs in a lot of markets, but I got to tell you, my brain sort of. Uh, I'm almost stopped with all that. I'm almost frozen with all that it can possibly accomplish. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. What were you going to say, Jonathan? Yeah, I was just going to reflect based on what you just said, um, reflecting on this decline of classical music, we were kind of looking for, for reasons for this. And, uh, and I think, I mean, one reason is there's many different options. And one thing I find interesting is music the length of music pieces has really shortened a lot, you know, mm. progressively, but quite, quite a bit. I don't know what the official radio music length is uh, for a track is now is what two and a half minutes or something like this. I mean, you, you still had in the I don't know, 60s or something, you still had tracks that were 10, 15 minutes and, uh, you know, that was fine. Obviously classical pieces are, are quite long. And if I look at my life, if I'm doing the dishes or something, then I'm not going to put, you know, uh, a classical piece because I'll be, it's just a bit too long for that maybe. So maybe you'll find something intermediary that'll fit your, the, the, you know, the purpose better or something, if you want to look at it like this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then of course there are people who go to three hour movies and are, are fine right. with sitting in the movie theater for three hours yeah. or reading a book for, you know, however long. So yeah, or I, binging binging a show the whole summer. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably me. So, but okay. <laughs> then there's all the jobs of the performer, the jobs of connecting with your fellow mm -hmm. musicians, and I mean yeah. the jobs of I mean when you're playing, you know, there's something different about playing by yourself, which you would mm -hmm. probably call practice, but it's actually more than practice because you're enjoying it. But there's something different as soon as there uh, there's one more person in the room. Yes, uh, it, 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 it makes yeah. all of a sudden everything's different because you almost feel like you have you, you can't just do whatever you want. Right. You have you have to sort mm -hmm. of do something. they So the whole environment changes. But in the jobs, I would say I, my, I just use the term the environment changes. I would say you're probably the job somehow changed where if I'm playing by myself, I'm the executor, a job executor. And then now I, I have a customer. But I don't know, Ruth, what are, what are your thoughts oh on the jobs of the performer? <laughs> my brain is exploding right now. Um, <laughs> the jobs of a, of a performer. Well, I'll say myself as an opera singer. Um, for me, I got so much 
joy and pleasure out of um, be trying to better my technique. And it was sort of a um, an endless pursuit of perfection. There was something really um, motivating about tackling something so challenging as, as opera technique and, um, you know, learning stagecraft and understanding how to pronounce the different languages. There was something about that, that was so fulfilling for me. Um, I think also, you know, that feeling of connecting with your audiences, um, you know, when you're out on stage and you're, you're, you're channeling the, the, the character that you're portraying and you're, through real emotion and you can feel the audience connecting with that. And I think that's partly why I've migrated towards marketing is because it's the same thing in marketing, right? You're, you have to figure out your customer's deepest motivations as opposed to your character's deepest motivations. And then you have to find a way to connect with real emotion to those target audiences um, so that they will care. And so that they will, you know, want to learn more. Um, So it's a very similar thing. Very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. I kind of have a suspicion that, that Scott is mapping out different jobs and scribing everything <laughs> down. But, <laughs> because, I mean, okay. it's really, once you start thinking about it, there is there's really a thousand different things going on. And it really is. I love this, how you describe this, this almost parallel between, between being, being on a stage and then, and then kind of finding a right way of marketing something as, as a... Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's for me, I never really thought I'd find something that I love as much as, as singing opera, but I do feel like I'm pretty darn close with this whole jobs to be done and, you know, customer centric marketing. Cause it really, to me feels very similar. Yeah. And I particularly on the, it resonated a lot with me, this idea of the pursuit of perfection. And I think, I mean, Scott has a couple of things to say. If you read his book on jobs to be done, it, there is a lot in there of, 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 of how that relates to jobs to be done as well, because mm. I mean, you're in a better position to explain it, Scott, but it's kind of this, um, I, I think there is something very, very deeply human as well about this, this pursuit of per- perfection, of, of getting better, which just yes. gives us, a, I don't know, a sense of, of accomplishment of, of, I mean, you described yourself of pride and so on, which is because it seems to be something in us that we just strive for this, for this, betterness and somehow we get a reward out of it yeah i mean isn't that the sort of foundation of jobs be done thinking is that people buy something because it will help them become who they want to be right it will help them transform themselves and so that's that's the job i think in the arts world is to try to figure out what are our target audiences trying to do what progress are they trying to make who are they who do they want to be and how can our art help them do that yeah Uh, it's such a such a more fulfilling approach than saying how can we sell more tickets right (laughs) yeah exactly because how can we sell more tickets then you end up with the website which has 10 calls to action to buy uh, buy tickets (laughs) or whatever but it's not but yeah i mean that's the i mean that is not exclusive to the art world if you ask the same question how can we push more of our product you end up with the exact same kind of marketing that is that just doesn't it's not compelling it doesn't work Mm -hmm. it doesn't i mean there's so much fatigue that uh, yeah Okay, yeah. that's a different story. <laughs> oh, that's so true. So, so I have a, a, a tricky question, and I, I just want to—I'll try and see if I can express it correctly. So, I—I I, I was reading a, a description of uh, what a game is. You know, I mean, what? To, how do you define a game? And the the definition was something like um, people and why people play games. So, a game people play games because, uh, and it's. They choose the obst- They choose an obstacle that they're going to struggle to uh, overcome. 
So it's a, you choose a you purposefully choose a, a situation in which you you have obstacles and uh, that you want to overcome, and that's part of the the, the this idea of of the the appeal. And Scott, uh, uh, sometime at the beginning of our discussion, mentioned this notion of traditions, and we've been talking about uh, you know okay, classical music decline, etc., and maybe we need to. Uh, ease some of the things that around classical music that you know it's it's a hassle to get dressed for the, the the event and there's a lot of obstacles like this and I have like now in my mind an interesting tension because on the one hand uh, one could argue that that having these obstacles and these uh, this struggle in somehow uh, in in in, uh, in in getting to to participate, take part, consume, uh, quote-unquote, uh, a classical performance, maybe that also could be part of the appeal in some, some sense. And so how can we, I'm just thinking out loud, how can we uh, uh, reconcile these two, these two ideas? Okay, making it more, making the, the process more perfect, more with less, less barriers, less obstacles, more efficient, and at the same time, this idea that maybe the obstacles are part of the enjoyment of, of, mm -hmm. of it. I love that question. And I think it's, it's something that, that is a struggle and, and other people have, have brought this to my attention as well is we've got so many different types of customers. We have some customers who don't want to have to do much. They just want to sort of show up and enjoy the experience. But then we have these other customers who they do, they want to learn something new. They want to better themselves. They want to feel like they're more cultured. They actually do want to wear something fancy, right? That's, that's something that feels like progress to them. Um, so maybe it comes down to how you strategize about all the extras, you know, um, there, there's a, there's a grill company. I can't remember the name. Is it Weber grills or something that they, they provide grills, but they know that the job to be done is to be, a, to be really good at grilling food. And so they give, you know, grilling lessons online and they sell all these different sort of um, tools to help you be a better griller. So when it comes to the arts, maybe it has to do with adding programming where you can, um, you know, and there are a lot of arts organizations who offer like a pre-concert lecture. So, you know, those types of things maybe um, are the things that are going to attract the people who do want to have some struggle um, to get to where they want to be. Um, how does that yeah. resonate? Yeah, that's that sounds uh, that sounds really good. I, I don't have an answer. I'm just uh, just wondering how one can. Do yeah. This. No, but it's true. I think there are certain things, also certain products, where you kind of need to find ways of educating your customer into the into the category. I think that is mm -hmm. a familiar thing. I mean, there are products that are very everyday commodities and so on, but but there are some kinds of niche products, or well, just products. Where you, where you have to find ways of educating in part, at least part of, of your customer base. And, and that's a yeah. difficult thing to figure out. But It is because like, you don't want to make them feel stupid, right? That's, that's exactly. Tricky. exactly. But I think I was thinking um, this week about how wine, wine, the wine industry has a similar yeah. problem, right? Because there are some folks who just are like, just give me whatever. Um, but, you know, there, there's so much nuance to wine. And um, and yeah, it's, it's an interesting sort of... Um, a correlation, I think, when you look at those two industries. But you know what I think? I mean, I don't know how, how others experience this, but if I talk to companies, somehow I get the feeling that there are people sitting in companies 
and, and it's I don't mean that as an offense, but they believe the exact same thing about their own products. Our customers don't get it. Mm. We are much more refined. We're much more advanced than our customers. We have such a great technology and they, why don't they buy? Well, they just don't get it. Yeah. And I think oh, that sure. attitude is not that particular, to be honest. I think it's much more widespread than we, than we might believe. That's interesting. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's Confession just time. Me being in a jobs to be done consultant role, I am completely vulnerable to that exact same thing. Uh, like if I'm teaching, <laughs> it's like, well, they, I mean, I really have to stop and sort of have a conversation with myself. So it's having this sort of uh, knowledge of jobs to be done doesn't yeah. not inoculate me from that same because I, yeah. this is what I'm, I'm so, there's our ironies on top of ironies. I'm so passionate about jobs to be done. I get frustrated when other people don't immediately <laughs> understand it. Um, so, so, so yeah. I think we're all vulnerable a bit, Ryan. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, even I find myself, you know, I've written about this for almost a year now and um, I still find myself looking at maybe my, my blog and being like, oh, that language I use there, that's not customer centric at all. Or, you know, why, <laughs> why did I even, you know, use that image or whatever. So I think it's, it's, you have to constantly sort of check yourself to make sure you're still thinking from that, yeah. that customer's perspective. I want to, I, I, I would love to get a little bit into kind of, I mean, the way I see it or the way I experience you also on, 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 on various social media is kind of your, your very targeted interventions kind of into the, into the art where the last one, you, I, you had to bring it up and you have to explain it, the <laughs> Indiana Jones kind of inter, intervention. I want to get into a little bit into how, 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 does, how does the art world react? What kind of feedback do you get? And maybe you could fiddle in the, the Indiana Jones kind of yeah. um, copy that you made, which I loved, by the way. Yep. Yeah. So, um, you know, there, I'm not the first one to be talking about this, right? There have been other people that have ranted and raved about arts marketing for a long time, but I think what has been lacking is just, um, an example, like examples of like, here's how you do it. Not here's what's wrong, but here's how to do it right. And so I, um, I, because I enjoy, I have this sort of creative side where I enjoy making videos and I enjoy, you know, doing graphic design. I'm not a pro, but I, you know, do my best. I, that's something that I've taken on. So when I see something that is absolutely ridiculous, um, I usually do a side by side and I say, here's the old way. Here's the new way. Look, I fixed it. <laughs> yeah. And so, um, you know, I had seen, uh, a couple of, of prominent orchestra websites that ha have splashed across their homepage, a picture of their conductor. And, um, you know, if you're an outsider, so if you're an insider, let's say you're a loyalist who always attends concerts, you know who that conductor is, you know how talented they are, you appreciate why they're there. But the outsiders who I'm always thinking about, because if we're going to grow our audiences, we have to bring in the people who are not familiar with our world. Um, they're going to see that photo and they're literally going to say, who is that ugly old white guy? I don't care. Uh, and that's yeah. a huge problem, right? Um, so I wanted to show... I wanted to show, okay, what would this look like in a different sector? And so it was late at night, a couple of nights ago, my husband and I were talking about this and he was like, you should put Steven Spielberg on a poster of one of his movies. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> all right. So I grabbed an Indiana Jones poster and I grabbed a Steven Spielberg picture and I put him there, splashed him across that poster. And we were in hysterics about it. It just was so ridiculous. You would never see that in, in Hollywood. And so, you know, I posted that, I said, you know, 
splashing a photo of your conductor across your homepage is like putting a photo of Spielberg on his movie poster. Um, it, and I think, you know, and I got some, a little bit of pushback on that from some I of the, imagine. some of my artist friends, but, um, I, I really think you have to remember the idea of relevance, um, and context. Uh, like I've said before, you know, us consumers have tons of relevance for the Hollywood movie genre for the pop stars. Um, it's my husband calls it preloaded context. It's they, it's just in the vernacular. It's, it's everywhere. So they understand it, but classical music is not. And so they have very little context for that world. And of course, a conductor, a conductor is important, right? Uh, um, it, but a live performance is nothing without an audience. So <laughs> we have to um, start thinking about how we're um, creating doors, metaphorical doors into our offerings. And if, if those doors don't align with how people interact with their world, it's just irrelevant. They're going to look, not even give it a second glance. Um, and and I love Nina Simon's book, The Art of Relevance, which I think is very much aligned with jobs to be done. It's um, it's she comes from the museum world, but it's it's you know it's very applicable to um, all arts. And she says, you know, when you change the ways that pe people can access your your metaphorical space, the way that you market it, everyone benefits um, because you're transform you're not transforming what's inside the room. You're not dumbing down the art. You're you're opening it up and you're just changing who can actually get inside. Um, and so, you know, people, jobs to be done theory, it's all about, you know, identifying what transformation a consumer is seeking um, because people buy, not because of who they are, but because of who they want to become. Um, and in the context of live classical music, it's really, really hard for the uninitiated to imagine for themselves that an orchestra concert could help them on their journey of becoming who they want to be. There's just so many stereotypes and there's, they're not familiar with it. So um, we as arts administrators and marketers, we have to be prepared to create this relevance. That's, so that's my, <laughs> that's my soapbox. Um, and that's why, you know, I do these fixed it little things. Um, I'm glad you got a kick out of it. Cause I was, I was, I thought it was hilarious. <laughs> no, I, I mean, I mean, if, if, I mean, what I like is really this, it gives you this outside perspective, right? So it, it I mean, the, the, the Steven Spielberg on the, on the Indiana Jones stuff, it, it makes, it immediately makes you realize how ridiculous it is. But, but in our day-to-day -day stuff, we, 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 we don't get this outside perspective or it's so easily lost. And then once you see it, I mean, it's like, it's obvious that that isn't the way we should be marketing our stuff, but then, so yeah anyway so I that, that's why yeah. I thought it was so to the point like I had someone on Twitter comment that it actually made him want to see directors on movie posters and I Ooh. <laughs> I was like uh, that's okay. just being a <laughs> yeah. well, but I asked him I said okay let me I'm curious are you a movie buff do you watch a lot of movies and are you actually really um into like who the directors are and and he's yeah. like yeah and I said well that's why it works for you <laughs> Yeah, interesting. You're an insider, yeah. right? You're an insider. And so, I mean, that makes sense. But um, we only have, we have very few insiders and we have a whole bunch of outsiders that we have to reach. So. Yeah, that's very nice. Can you, what was the, the book was The Art of Relevance. And, the Art and of Relevance by Nina Simon. And everyone thinks it's Nina Simone, but it's not. It's Nina Simon. It's Nina Simon. Um, she also has some really fantastic TED Talks on YouTube too. Um, but yeah, lots of talk about insiders and outsiders and how to how to get them in to, okay. to your thoughts yeah okay I've, I've, i think that's the next next one i'll check out if i yes. have time absolutely <laughs>
Okay, so so in a sense, the so there is a reaction from the art world. People, you you kind of find, I imagine you're hitting you're hitting on a nerve because the issue is there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and I think I get the impression that people are are interested in these ideas because it's such a different approach. I mean, there there is some pushback, but you know, I, I my my work has been mentioned on a, a a handful of blogs. I've I've gotten a decent um, you know, subscriber list going and I've got a pretty good following on Facebook. I have a, I call it the arts marketing hall of fame. And so every day <laughs> I post every day, I post an, an outstanding example. Cause there's so much, you know, bashing of arts marketing yeah. that happens these days. So I'm trying to like really find the good examples and put it out there. And, and I think it is a new approach and it resonates with a lot of people. Um, because, you know, arts marketing and strategy has been the same for, I don't know how many decades now. And I think with, the changes that COVID has wreaked on the performing arts world and the changes that, um, you know, consumer trends are showing these days, you know, millennials are so different um, in terms of a target audience. I think people are really hungering for something new to try and in a new, a new perspective. So it does seem to be resonating. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're in a unique position to, to, to talk about this because you're, you're actually an artist yourself and you come from that sector. So they'll, I think people will be much more uh, ready to listen to you than to someone who comes from, who's done an MBA, let's say, or something. Mm-hmm. Although um, I have to, I have to be yeah. careful not to be too harsh. I think sometimes I have, to, I get a little bit too like, come on, can't you see it? But, um, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I think that's just, that's just kind of what happens. I think what jobs to be done is one of those things. At, at least that's my experience talking to people who, who kind of, uh, well, I wanted to say got infected with, but it's kind of not the good good metaphor, but kind of just once you have that lens, mm-hmm. once you you kind of read, have understood the concept of what it is about, it's you cannot put it down. It doesn't it doesn't go away in a sense. At least mm-hmm. that is my experience. I mean. I've gotten into touch with jobs some 10, 12 years ago, and it's it it does it just never goes away. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like a way of thinking or looking at, at stuff that, that you you just cannot shed. It's it's yeah. It's, Do you it's, find yourself like watching ads on TV and being like, oh, that's a really good customer centric approach? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. what I do constantly now. Yeah. yeah. But what's interesting is not all ads uh, function like this, including some very good ads. Or if they do, I've not quite figured out how they actually go about thinking about them. One eye or a series of ads, I've, I've not seen any of this company lately, but they, they have, they probably still do the same. So PNG did great ads that were very much about storytelling, about they had a whole series about mothers raising Olympic champions and, uh, and just general sports people. And they had all sorts. They had the thing, one with girls, um, about girls, uh, or maybe I'm mixing up. There was someone else. But anyway, the, the PNG did some great ads like this. And I don't find it that easy to pinpoint actually the, the job in an ad like this. So um, it's an interesting thing. Also. Yeah. You know, I um, the, another great book that I love is um, The Marketing Rebellion by Mark Schaefer. I don't know if you oh, guys yeah. read that one. Um, love yeah, that it's book. It's out there. Yeah. Um, and, and he talks about how um, values-based marketing has become so popular um, and, and so powerful. And, exactly. and 
I think it has to do with, um, I think the number is 68% of millennials are say that they are actively trying to create change in the world. And so I think companies are realizing this and are trying to tap into that. That's a job to be done, right? If you can say, oh, that company is, is, is trying to create change in the world. I'm going to buy their product because then I feel like I'm engaging in that change. I think there's something to that. Yeah. The product itself is not completely, is, is in a way unrelated to that uh, mission and that, that job that they're portraying in the, in the ads themselves, which is, mm-hmm. so it's, it's a bit of a different, as you, a different thing, as you mentioned, it's, it's based on values and uh, it's also another mm-hmm. interesting approach. Yeah. Well, I think yeah, for me, oh, go on. Oh, I, I was going to say, that I've seen a commercial that recently with, um, um, oh gosh, math, Matthew McConaughey for Salesforce. I don't know if you guys have seen that one where he's talking about, you know, um, he's floating in a hot air balloon and he's talking about how it's time to, it's time to, you know, come together. And, and I'm like, this is not about Salesforce at all, (laughs) but it's tapping into that desire, that job to be done for these consumers who want to like see change in the world and want to help create change in the world. Yeah. I mean, this is kind of, I, so it's difficult to, to, to express it, but I think it's, I mean, there's jobs to be done can be used for different things, right? And I think very often, at least in my experience, is, is that if you're thinking about, okay, I want to kind of improve a, an existing product, you're, you're not in that rather, let's say, more abstract, more higher level, higher level jobs, but the more and more you move towards marketing, I think the more and more the higher level jobs are, we call them bigger wise, as it were, they, yeah. they kind of become much, much, much more relevant because there is about, it's not about necessarily the kind of, improving an existing product or figuring out what is the pain point when they use blah 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 or when functional job yeah yeah exactly when they try to accomplish a functional job but kind of what is the garnish around it as it were that is that is a bit more abstract and that is much has a much higher relevance i think for marketing marketing stuff and i think it's it's important also to kind of to keep those two things apart right so Mm -hmm. to use it for product development which i believe tends to be much more a functional thing and then if you go down let's say down the funnel to the marketing, it kind of gets to the more abstract or higher level. It becomes much, much more relevant. Mm-hmm. In your ad, actually, that uh, we were talking about previously, it's also quite a high level abstract quote unquote job. So it, it's it's not really a, and all work, Tony all work, another big figure in the jobs to be done community uh, always hammers the point that you know you have to focus on functional jobs and I agree that when you're talking about marketing and and um, advertising uh, often you'll try and go in the more abstract high level jobs and that's what you did too I, I in my opinion on in uh, this ad you created mm-hmm. yeah I think um when you can create that emotional response, that is typically what prompts action. So I think that's why it, it becomes so important in marketing to yeah. have that emotional job, to be clear. I agree. I'm, I'm, we're trying to figure out at the moment kind of what, what, what are good models of actually of, of behavioral change. Yeah. Right. And, and I think uh, kind of one of the learning I'm, I'm really at the beginning of reading through that stuff, but, but one of the key learnings is really that, and, and we kind of know this intuitively is that rationality itself is not alone is, is not enough. I'm sorry. So of course, every smoker knows that smoking is bad for them. It's not, it's, yeah. it's not a question of information. It's not a question of, they know exactly what they're doing to themselves, but still they don't act. And then mm-hmm. kind of what does it take in addition 
to get them to get them moving or to get them to stop smoking. Or you can turn, also turn yeah. this positively and kind of um, I don't know get a get a um, get the checkup at fifty. Right? Why don't people do it and and so on? So a lot of, of these things is I think it's only when you add an emotional component that they actually start 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 acting on it they actually start mm-hmm. get moving it, it's kind of a question of motivation or something like that it's so true and and we do a lot of this kind of work at the institute when it comes to healthcare, um and and yeah. social determinants of health and i'm not an expert on it but it i think it's such a huge component of healthcare and trying to figure out what is what is the primary job to be done here and how can we motivate people um using that yeah, as yeah. but it's fascinating that's very nice Maybe I'm so we've been whew, talking for okay. Uh, maybe I would I was wondering just kind of we've been always kind of now uh, looking at the art art world as our 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 object let's say and they have to learn our jobs to be done stuff and so on. But is 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 there a kind of uh, a flip side to this? So does does kind of the business world or or or, or so can they can we learn something from the arts or <laughs> you know the jobs uh, to be done in particular? I don't know. I mean, how can we? Yeah, on the surface, you would think no, right? Because it's a completely different industry. But um, like I said before, Clayton Christensen was was really well known for his storytelling. And um, he had, you know, in his back pocket, a couple of stories he would always tell when he was trying to explain the theory. One was the steel mill story. The other was the milkshake story. And, you know, he brought these, I think he has the story about how he, he, um, he spoke with the head of Intel and he told him the steel mill story. And um, Intel went off and made like $2 billion <laughs> from what they learned. Can you maybe um, t- tell the steel mill story? I think the milkshake is more oh or less gosh. I, I'm or gonna, not. I'm okay. going to let somebody else do that. Yeah, I, we I, can I, find I'm it not, on YouTube. Though. I'm not practiced at it, but it's, it's the steel mill story is the story of disruptive innovation. It explains okay, yeah. disruptive innovation and, and, um, and how, you know, uh, and the milkshake story is the story of jobs to be done where, why would you hire a milkshake, you know, for your commute? Um, so I think what, what he knew, and I think it's so true is that when you hear, um, the theories explained in a different sector, it really can open your eyes to your own sector. I, I think it actually helps yeah. to hear about it in a different sector. Cause you realize, Oh, that is happening to me too. You know, that's happening in my world and it, it helps you understand it in a deeper way. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I agree. <laughs> That's very nice. Um, so I don't know. I if um, how, how how do you feel, Jonathan Scott? Um, are we still 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 going strong, Ruth? How are you? <laughs> I mean, I think we covered a lot of We cover a lot of ground, and we've got some great great content, in my opinion. So yeah, I really enjoyed it. I have a question, <laughs> Ruth. What's your very favorite piece of music? Oh God. Oh. Of course, I should have asked. <laughs> um, I used to say my favorite piece of music is the one that I'm performing right now. <laughs> um, and I'm not really performing much at the moment, but I'm obsessed with um, a CD that came out a year or two ago by this composer, Jeff Blumenkrantz, and this uh, Broadway jazz singer, Alicia Umfress. And um, the CD is called I've Been Played. And it's basically, um, it's the, he's, Jeff Blumenkrantz is an incredible jazz pianist and composer, and he writes beautifully for the voice. And it's kind of, it feels like a modern rendition of like the 1940s jazz ballads. So that's, that's what I'm playing on repeat right now. (laughs) 
Are you awesome. a person that listens to the same song over and over, or like you play one and yet you have to wait a while and come back to it? Oh gosh, um, I don't know. I I I think when it comes to movies, I never want to watch the same thing twice. But when it comes to music, I do get in a groove a little bit because I like to sing along. That's my yeah. <laughs> a lot of singing along. So if, so if something feels great in my voice, or you know, it's it's making my improving my mood. That's a job to be done right there. Um, I, I might play it more than once. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's nice i I'm, I'm i'm kind of the reverse i don't listen that much to music but i could watch i mean i can word by word matrix one i know it all <laughs> <laughs> yeah i'm definitely a listen to it if i if i if, uh, if a song puts me in a certain state of mind i sort of want to stay there i'll just i'll drive you don't want to ride in the car with me <laughs> i want to play it over uh, yeah, I think I'm the same. Without, almost without fatigue. It's really, and again, sort of sort of to circle around to how we started our conversation. Music is, is so mysterious. What is it? It's mm. these frequencies going in our ears and our brains. It's not even it's not even what we think it is. Our brain is translating it into this signal. It's 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 yeah. beyond uh, our imagination of of what it yeah. really is. It's these vibrations yeah. that our brains are processing and we connect with each other. It's you know, you could actually never explain music to someone who who had never experienced it. I don't think. Oh wow, that's that sounds hard. <laughs> yeah, yeah, probably. Yeah, that's. I mean, I I read a um a a a piece about um the composer Olivier Messiaen who was in a constant Nazi concentration camp mm. and um he he composed while he was there and there were a couple of musicians there and they they performed the piece that he wrote and now it's oh. you know um very well known and respected but you know the 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 speaker or the writer was saying like how in a concentration camp you have no food no water you're getting beat up you your life is at risk how how do you have energy and time for art and yeah. music and the conclusion was it's 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 part of survival you know it's yeah. it's part of life yeah oh that's i mean i so agree i so agree. this this idea of 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 the arts is something that you only care about once everything else has been, it's so wrong. So mm -hmm. I think there's this beautiful saying by Friedrich Nietzsche where he says, um, life is only justified as an aesthetic phenomenon. Mm. So kind of it's, you need music and arts and so on for survival. And I think it's just oh. it's exactly that. So I love that. All right. I mean, hey, Ruth, thank you so, 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 so much for doing this, for taking the time. Thank you. It was an absolute pleasure. Oh my gosh, this is so much fun. Thank you so much. Kind of that concludes, um, I believe, our Product Quest podcast for today. Um, send any of your comments or ideas for future so shows always to productquest at gmail.com and hopefully see you next time. <laughs>